want to invite you to turn to John chapter 16 this morning. We are continuing our series entitled Jesus' Final Words. Started in John 13, we're marching all the way through the rest of John. Each week we're looking at a specific uh, passage within uh, each of these chapters of Jesus' final instructions, his words of instruction uh, to his disciples. He's preparing them for his upcoming death, resurrection, and even ascension. And so we see these final instructions of Jesus. Uh, we come today, actually, to what we call the end of the Upper Room Discourse. So starting in chapter 13, all the way through 16, we call this the Upper Room Discourse. However, as Pastor Justin talked about last week, it seems as though at the end of chapter 14, they actually left the Upper Room and began that walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would, of course, pray prior to being betrayed and arrested. So it seems as though, even though we call this the Upper Room Discourse, there's still on the way to the garden as Jesus is giving these final instructions. So these, quite frankly, the words we're going to look at this morning are very, quite frankly, Jesus' final words of instruction to his disciples prior to that arrest and crucifixion. So this is his last words prior to being betrayed, being arrested, being crucified, and then eventually rising from the dead and ascending to the Father. If you're a sports fan like me, then this is one of the best times of year for you. We call it March Madness. And every year it's filled with Cinderella stories, with bracket busters and buzzer beaters and all kinds of fun. We get to see uh, teams that no one expected to win do the unthinkable and beat and upset their opponent. And so this year, as we even saw, and it's funny, I wrote this illustration on Thursday prior to what happened on Friday. But... Even prior to what happened Friday, the Cinderella story this year is St. Peter's out of New Jersey. Uh, they, in the first round, they're a 15 seed. It's not very common for a 15 seed to beat a 2 seed. Uh, a 16 seed has only beaten a 1 seed one time ever. 15s beat 2s every once in a while, but it's not super common. But not only did they take down the number 2 seeded Kentucky, St. Peter's in the next round beat Murray State to become only the third ever 15 seed to go to the Sweet 16. And then, again, as I wrote that Thursday, I was thinking, that's pretty impressive. But then Friday, as to your detriment, many of you who are Purdue fans, they ended up beating number three seeded Purdue to be the first ever 15 seed to go to the Elite Eight. And if you've seen any of the interviews with the coach, the coach is a pretty awesome guy. He was a player at one point. And so I remember seeing one interview where I think it was after they beat Murray State, they asked the coach, you know, your team is not as big as some of these other teams like Kentucky and Murray State. And so what do you tell your team uh, before they go and face these bigger, stronger opponents? How do you tell them to be tough? And he said, you know, he kind of laughed about the question. He said, you know, it's going to sound crazy, but I got guys from New Jersey and New York City. Do you think we're afraid of anything? <laughs> and he went on to say there, even though they're smaller, they might not look as physically imposing they're the ones that are bringing the physicality. And you saw that in every game they played, even against Purdue. Purdue's got a seven-foot-four center, and they were beasting on him. I mean, bodying him, they're playing physically. They were playing tough defense. And you, so you see this mentality the coaches brought to this team. Even though they're smaller, even though they may be counted out, I imagine his locker room speeches, I imagine his halftime speeches have got to be energizing, where he just says, guys, we're going to go out there, and we're going to play our hardest and even though no one gives us a chance, we're going to fight and hopefully win. As we come to these final words of Jesus this morning, 
I picture them as almost like a pregame speech that a coach would give. As he's preparing his men for what's about to take place, Jesus is here preparing his men for what's about to happen in a few short hours, days, weeks. He's preparing them. He's done all, just like a coach has done all the legwork of practicing, going over the plays, conditioning his players. Well, when they get to the pregame speech, all that's been completed. Jesus has spent three and a half years now pouring into these men, preparing them for what's about to take place, and now it's the pregame speech. And so he's giving them some final words of encouragement for what they're about to face, the adversity they're about to face in really just a few short hours. He's going to prepare them specifically as they're cast into the thick of things with Jesus' betrayal and his death. And we're going to see how these words definitely apply to preparing them for those days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's also encouraging them with what takes place after even his ascension, as we're going to see. And so what would these final words of instruction be? It's that pregame speech. How is he going to prepare his disciples for what they're about to face? And not only are what are his words going to be to them, what are Jesus' words to us? See, Scripture is, all Scripture is given by inspiration, is profitable for doctrine and proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So these words are for us as well. The truth is, we need these words of encouragement just as much as they did, because we are in the thick of things in our Christian lives. We today face trials and persecution, discouragement, and doubt. For us today, maybe these words are not so much like a pregame speech. Maybe for some of us, they're that half-game, halftime pep talk, right? And, and we're talking about halftime when you've gotten blown out in the first half and feel like the game's already over and you feel like, what's the point? And the coach has got to rally you up to just keep going. Maybe that's how some of you feel this morning. You're here and you feel defeated by the enemy. You feel like life and the weight of the circumstances of life are coming crashing down around you. And so these words can be an encouragement to you. We look around our world and we can feel like we're losing many times as believers if we're not careful. If we don't cling to the promise of God's word. We can look around at the unrest in countries like Ukraine and see these people that are devastated. The unrest really across the world and we can feel like we're losing. We can look closer to home and even here in our country and see the division and the violence that takes place in our country and feel like we're losing. We can even look to our church body and see the trials we're going through as a church body and feel as though we're defeated. And we can go even down to our personal lives, the struggles that we face on a daily basis, struggles with sin, with fear, depression, addiction, financial hardship, parenting challenges, relational friction, maybe health issues or the loss of a loved one, job stress or any other number of struggles we may be going through. We feel in those situations as though we may be losing. So Jesus' disciples needed some final words of encouragement before they faced the coming hours and days. And we too today need some divine words of encouragement as we face life on a daily basis. So my desire as we come to John 16, and we see the words of Jesus, is that we would allow these words to be the encouragement that we need today. Look at John 16, beginning in verse 16. 
Jesus says this to his disciples, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then in verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these powerful words of Jesus. And I pray today that you would meet us where we are, in our trials and our struggles and our afflictions, and that you would encourage our souls as only you can, as only your spirit working through your word can do. So, Father, guard my speech. May I... Proclaim your word. May I proclaim your truth with boldness. And God, I pray today we would see the victory that is ours in Christ and the peace and joy we can have in the midst of our struggles, knowing that the outcome is secure. So God, just challenge us today for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we unpack Jesus' final words here in John 16. I want us to look at two expectations that Jesus prepares his disciples as well as us for as we go through the struggles of life. First of all, the first expectation, this may not be working. I think it's dead. Will you click on that first one? Expect hardship. Expect hardship. Maybe you're thinking, boy, this is not the encouraging word I thought it was going to be. Expect hardship? That's not very encouraging, but... In preparing his disciples for what they're about to face when he's crucified, and even after he's ascended, Jesus has to make sure 
as he's done really throughout his ministry with the disciples, that they're, they have the proper expectations to expect hardship. We could go, if you look back to John 15, where we were last week, if you look at the heading right after where we left off in verse 17, the heading in my Bible talks about the hatred of the world. Jesus is preparing his disciples that, hey, the world is going to hate you because they hated me. So you're going to be hated for your faith. He also says there in verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1, uh, in verse 2, that they'll be put out of the synagogues. This was that community of faith that they were a part of. So the world's going to hate them. They're going to be put out of the synagogues, cast aside. And he even tells them in the first part of chapter 16, not only that, that they're going to be killed for their faith. And, and they're going to be killed while the world rejoices. They're going to be killed and... The people that are doing the killing are going to think they're doing it in service to God. And so he's preparing them for the hardship that they're about to experience. We know that all these things came to pass after Jesus' ascension. As the disciples went out to boldly proclaim the gospel, they faced persecution. They were hated by the world. They were cast out of the synagogues, and many of them were killed. In fact, all of the disciples, apart from John, who writes this gospel, were killed for their faith. Jesus prepares them even for the immediate hardship that they're going to experience when he's crucified. Here, we know that he's told them about his impending crucifixion and resurrection, but it's gone right, right over their head, in one ear and out the other. They don't understand what's going on. They see Jesus as this Messiah who would overthrow Rome. And so, any idea of Jesus dying is not going to fit with their idea of what he's come to do. And so he prepares them. They're about to have their hopes and dreams crushed. When Jesus dies, he tells them at the end of chapter 16 there that when that happens, they're going to be scattered apart. Their leader is going to be gone, and they're going to be scattered. They're going to have those struggles of facing this realization of the crucifixion of their Messiah. You can only imagine the pain that the disciples felt. They spent over three years with Jesus, day in and day out. Again, hopeful that he's going to be that one, to restore the kingdom to Israel, to overthrow Rome, and yet they're about to face the crushing reality of their leader being killed. It's interesting as we talk about this passage where Jesus says you're going to have sorrow. Uh, he says you're going to have uh, groaning. These words are not only just an external groaning, but an inward groan of the soul. They're about to face the most sorrowful thing they can imagine is their leader is crucified. And to add insult to injury, the world is going to rejoice at the death of Jesus. So we see the persecution, the hardship that Jesus is preparing them for. Unless we think that this is just for them in that time period, I'll remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, hardship is something that even we as believers today are promised, are told to expect. Throughout church history and even today, believers experience hardship of, the hardship of persecution and trial and tribulation. We could look at countries around the world where people are killed or persecuted for their faith in Christ, and yet... Sadly for us as Americans, we can think that this is reserved for someone else other than us. We can think in our American dream mentality that really God's promised us success 
There's a false gospel that proclaims this. It's called the prosperity gospel. This gospel promises health and wealth and prosperity to all those who just have enough faith in Christ. Proponents of this false gospel claim uh, to offer your best life now. That God wants you to be happy and successful and rich and just healthy and flourishing. He wants all this for you physically. And sadly, so many professing believers buy into this false theology, thinking, thinking that God has promised a life of comfort and ease if we'll just have enough faith. This is absolutely inconsistent with what Jesus taught and what we find in the whole of Scripture. God is not concerned with our temporary health, wealth, and prosperity, but ultimately with His glory as He displays His incredible attributes to and through a people of his own possession. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we look here in a few moments, God often puts his glory on display and allows the gospel to spread through the most trying and difficult times in the life of his believers, those who have faith in him. Think about just a, a, a current example of what's going on in Ukraine, the unrest that's happening there. And there's testimonies coming out uh, over and over again of believers who are staying put in the midst of the chaos. Why? To provide for the needs of the people. And by doing so, standing firm, proclaiming the gospel, trusting in Christ, the gospel is spreading as unrest happens, as people see the faith of these men and women who are staying put to meet the needs. Even though it's a trying time, God is working through that in the midst of that to allow the gospel to go forth. We could probably all look at our lives spiritually and say, you know what, the times in our life that God worked the most were probably the times where we were struggling, where we were going through a trying season of life. It was those times that we had to fully be dependent upon the Lord. And so God constantly uses trials, struggles of life to refine us as believers, to glorify himself, and to allow the gospel to go forth. John Phillips says it this way, persecution will come. Given the character of Christianity, the wickedness of this world, and the hatred of its evil prince, it is inevitable that persecution great and small will arise. But Satan cannot win. It has all been worked out in the eternal counsels of God. The blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. In time, God's people emerge purified and more powerful than ever. So we see these words from Jesus to expect hardship. That trials, persecution, struggles are going to come. But secondly, Jesus tells us this. And you'll have to click it for me. Expect victory. Expect hardship, but expect victory. Jesus tells his disciples there in those verses we looked at, really beginning in verse 20, he says, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus promises them that despite the hardship and the sorrow they face, that when they see the full picture of what he's come to accomplish, that sorrow will be turned to joy. There's an aspect of what Jesus is saying here when he says that 
their sorrow will be turned to joy. There's an aspect where he's talking about in the immediate context of the next few days, right? The crucifixion happens and his disciples are weeping and lamenting and sorrowful. And the world is rejoicing at the death of Jesus. And then, as we know, three days later at the resurrection, what happens? Things are flipped on their head. And now their sorrow has become joy at the reality of what Jesus has accomplished, that he is who he said he was, that he's risen from the dead, that he's God, that his sacrifice was acceptable. And as their minds begin to remember the words that Jesus said through his ministry of his death and resurrection and what it would accomplish, their sorrow turns to joy. They're joyful at the the resurrection. We know that the resurrection was without question the saddest and most tragic event in human history as sinners murdered the God of the universe. Most tragic event in human history. And we know even from Jesus' perspective that there was a grief in bearing the wrath of God for the sin of the world. In Isaiah 53.3, prophesying of Jesus, this Messiah, it says he was despised and rejected by, man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We see the sorrow and the grief of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is about to bear the wrath of God against the sin of the world. He's going to be separated from his Father in bearing that sin. We see his grief as he prays, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And we know in his sorrow and his grief of what was about to take place that he sweat drops of blood. So we see the sorrow of the cross. But you know what? The sorrow of the cross is transformed into the joy of the resurrection and the joy of what that crucifixion was meant to accomplish. That's why Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that while Jesus was sorrowful and Isaiah is that suffering Messiah and Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. While Jesus, in an earthly sense, experienced sorrow and grief, why did he do what he did? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he say, Not my will, but your will be done? Because of the joy set before him. Because he knew That through his death and resurrection, many would come to faith in him. Many would be taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God did not keep Jesus nor the disciples from the sorrow of the cross. He didn't keep them from experiencing those hard times of the crucifixion. But he transformed that sorrow into joy as they recognized the full scale of what the cross was to accomplish. The beauty is this, that God is in the business of working in this way. He is in the business of taking seeming tragedies and turning them into triumph. We're going to look at several passages, but we can't even name all the times in Scripture where God takes a seeming tragedy and brings triumph from it. I love this quote from Herbert Schlossberg. Uh, He wrote a book called Idols of Destruction. I love this quote. He says, We are not the lords of history and do not control its outcome. But we have assurance that there is a lord of history and he controls its outcome. We need a theological interpretation of disaster. One that recognizes that God acts in such events 
as captivities, defeats, and crucifixions. And then he says this, the Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. Let me say that one more time. The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. And then he goes on to say, those events seem to say not only that people and nations have failed, but that God has failed. When we look at it from a human perspective, it looks like, God, what are you doing? What is this tragedy that's taking place? From our perspective, it seems as though we failed or that God has failed. But he says this, only the prophetic word that both explained historical events and provided assurance that God is the Lord of history could dispel the terror born by such an appearance. When we know that God is sovereign, that he is working from tragedy, bringing it to triumph, we can rest in the assurance that he is at work, that he has not failed. Again, just think of a few examples from Scripture, and I challenge you to think of more. There are so many where God worked through apparent disaster to bring about his plan and purpose for his glory. Probably one of the most common ones is the story of Joseph, where Joseph is thrown uh, into a pit by his brothers, they're going to kill him, but they decide, no, we're going to sell him as a slave. He's sent to Potiphar's house. He's falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. Uh, there's a hope of maybe the, the butler or the baker uh, telling the Pharaoh about him so he can get out of prison. He's forgotten there for two years. But then eventually we see God work through the disaster. Why? To bring up Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream, to say there's a famine coming and to provide the way which eventually is the way God would provide for his people, his chosen people, Israel. It was through Joseph's foresight as God worked through him that they would be protected from famine as his brothers would come to him seeking food and he would reveal to them who he really was. And we know his brothers were fearful at what they had done, but what were Joseph's words? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. We see God working in the tragedy, the seeming tragedy of Joseph's life and bringing about his purpose and his plan. We see it constantly in the life of David. David struggled with trial, hardship, persecution, people coming against him, Saul, his son, Absalom. And yet, what do we see? Time and time again, God working through those situations. And we have a beautiful book of Psalms, many of whom were written by David, to encourage us as we go through trials, knowing that God is faithful, that he will provide. We see it in the book of Esther, if you're not familiar with Esther, Haman wanted to kill all the Jews. And God used Esther to uh, get to the king. And eventually, Haman's plan of killing the Jews comes back on him. And the same gallows that he had built to hang one of the Jews, Mordecai, he's hung on. God flips the script. He turns tragedy to triumph. We see it when God delivered the three Hebrews, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As you may know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He delivered them through the fiery furnace. Later in the book of Daniel, we know the story. He delivers Daniel through the lion's den. Again, we could go on and on and on looking at the whole of Scripture and see how time and time again God works through seeming tragedies to bring about triumph. But one of my favorites, and I want to invite you to turn here, is found in Exodus 14. Turn to Exodus 14. And actually, I've been reading through Exodus in my personal time, uh, and I've been reading in the NLT. You've heard Pastor Justin reference the, the NLT. Paul Jordan uses that, and so uh, it has a fresh way of communicating God's Word, and so I actually put in here these verses from the NLT because I love the way 
uh, it communicates this very familiar passage to us. We could talk about the tragedy of God's people after Joseph died, his people multiplied in Egypt, and we could say, look, here's tragedy. Here's God's people as slaves. And yet God was working a plan to deliver them. Exodus 14, verse 10 through 18. And again, this is in the NLT. It says, As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. So this is after they're out of Egypt. They're on the brink of, uh, on the banks of the, the Red Sea. And here comes Egypt right on their back. They're panicking because the Egyptians are overtaking them. It says, They cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? You could step back and say, God, what are you doing? Right? These are your people that you've chosen. Why did you bring us out here to suffer and to die? So they ask these questions. They say, we said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But listen to what Moses says. Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. Don't be afraid. Watch how God's going to deliver you. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. And then get this. Why is God doing this? Why is God leading them to slavery and leading them to this event where it seems like they're going to be overtaken by the Egyptians? Here's why. My great glory will be displayed through the Egyptians or through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. This is an account we're still looking at today. Something that happened thousands of years ago, and yet God's glory was on display. In seeming tragedy, God works it to triumph. He delivers His people. We know the Red Sea parts and they walk across and the Egyptians are destroyed. I like the way Warren Wiersbe says it. God takes seemingly impossible situations adds the miracle of His grace and transforms trial into triumph and sorrow into joy. So we see God working throughout history in this way. And so when Jesus tells His disciples here, their sorrow is going to be transformed to joy, He says that a little while and you will see Me no longer, and again, a little while and you'll see Me again. There's an aspect of Jesus' words here where He's saying, look, in a few hours I'm going to be crucified. And for three days, you're not going to see me. There's a little while that I'm not going to be seen, but then after a little while, I'll be seen again. There's an aspect that Jesus is talking about the immediate events that are about to happen with his crucifixion and resurrection. And we've talked about how that sorrow of the crucifixion will be turned into the joy of the resurrection. But he tells him in verse 28 there, you see, that he is going to the Father. Okay? So while there's an element, he's talking about the immediate future of the crucifixion and resurrection. Ultimately, He's talking about he's going to be ascended to the Father. That's the little while they will see him no longer. And then again, a little while and they'll see him again. 
So there's an element of the, talking about the crucifixion and resurrection, but I believe for us today as well, there's an application of he's referring to his ascension and to his second coming when he'll come again. This is the hope for us as believers of the imminent return of Christ. So he's not just preparing them for the three days between his death and resurrection. He's preparing them and us today for the time between his ascension and his second coming. We see this in verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus uses an illustration to demonstrate how their sorrow is going to be turned to joy. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So he uses this picture, this illustration of a woman who is in labor, is giving birth. And for us men, we don't know the pain and the anguish of that. But you as ladies, if, if you didn't have an epidural, or maybe if you did, you know the pain of childbirth. You know the sorrow that maybe takes place because of that pain. And yet, Jesus says... That sorrow, when a woman is in the anguish of childbirth, becomes joy. Why? Now here's a brand new baby. Here's the joy of that. And it's not that she completely forgets the pain she experiences. It's that that pain is overshadowed by the joy of this newborn child. What a beautiful illustration of the pain and the groaning that we feel today as we experience the hardship of life in eager expectation for the return of Christ. We are in the pains of childbirth here and now. In fact, Romans 8, 18 through 25 tells us this exact reality. It says, Paul writing this says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that all that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what Paul is saying is all of creation, because of sin, because of the fall, the creation experiences that eager expectation of freedom, of the hope, the revealing of the sons of God. But then he says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's a picture of the groaning that we feel today as we go through the trials of life as we go through the struggles of life, as we wonder why God is doing what He's doing in our life or in the world. It's the pains of childbirth. It's that consequence of the fall of sin. But we look to the day, just as creation does, when Christ will return, when Christ will make all wrongs right, when Christ will reveal His glory. When Christ will fully, will experience the redemption of our bodies. When sin and death is defeated once and for all. Donald Miller says this, as long as, Christians, as long as a Christian is in the world, he will be pressed as though by a great mob. He will be crushed in spirit as though great crushing weights were lying on his chest. 
He will know spiritual anguish like that of a mother in labor. This Jesus has told us. When he speaks, therefore, of peace, it is not the peace of unruffled days, but the inner confidence of the warrior who is weary, thirsty, outnumbered, and wounded, but who fights bravely on, confident of the outcome, assured of victory. And he says we are saved not from trouble, we are saved in trouble. So we feel the weight of the world crippling us many times as believers. But that should point us to the hope we have in Christ, the hope of his return, the hope of the day that we take our final breath, we will be redeemed, we will be fully restored. Sin and death will be no more. He'll wipe away every tear from our eye. In the world we see, verse 33, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. But prior to that, he says, in me you will have peace. How can we have peace in the midst of tribulation? We're not taken out of the world. In fact, Jesus prays that in verse 17, or chapter 17 of John. Not to take them out of the world, but that he'd keep them through the world. So how can we have peace in the midst of the tribulation of life? Jesus says, take heart. Right? This is the same Greek word as we see in Mark 6.50 where Jesus is walking on water and we know the scene is the disciples are traveling across the sea and what's happening? There's a great storm and these fishermen are so overwhelmed by this storm they feel like they're going to be overtaken, they're going to die. And they see this figure walking across the water and what does Jesus say to them? Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of what they're seeing. Don't be afraid of the storm. Why, why can they take heart? Because they're looking to him. Because they're trusting in him. Jesus is here offering them peace in the midst of the storms of life if they will simply trust him. Trust that he is working. Trust that he is sovereign. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. The peace of the world is that peace that says, well, if you can be freed from all trial and all tribulation, then you can really be at peace. But Jesus says, no, the peace I offer is peace in the midst of the trouble, peace in the midst of the storm, supernatural peace. He says to take heart, or some translations say, to be of good cheer. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. J.C. Ryle says, let us lean back our souls on these comfortable words and take courage. The storms of trial and persecution may sometimes be beat heavily on us, but let them only drive us closer to Christ. The sorrows, losses, and crosses and disappointments of our life may often make us feel sorely cast down, but let them only make us tighten our hold to Christ. Armed with this very promise, let us under every cross come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us often say to our souls, Why art thou cast down? And why art thou disquieted? And let us often say to our gracious Master, Lord, didst not thou say, Be of good cheer? Lord, do as thou hast said, and cheer us to the end. When we have a proper perspective of Jesus' words here, we can have peace. We can have joy even in the midst of our trial. And what is it that Jesus says? What is the reason to take heart? Take heart, I 
have overcome the world. We know the truth that Jesus' death on the cross was meant to pay the penalty for our sins. And that His resurrection demonstrated that His sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father. His resurrection demonstrated that He was who He said He was. That He is God in human flesh. His resurrection gives us the hope of resurrection if we will put our faith in Him. If we will turn from our sin and trust Him by faith, then He has overcome for us. He's overcome sin and death. He has victory. And so when we have the proper perspective of the victory that Christ has accomplished for us in defeating sin and death, and that one day we will fully experience the extent of this victory, we can experience peace and joy even in the midst of trials. Jesus' words here as He says, I have overcome the world. He's not, it's, these, these are not the words of, hey, I did it, you can do it too. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is, I have overcome for you on your behalf. You have victory not by following the way that I've demonstrated. You have victory by trusting and resting in Me. Trusting in the victory that only Christ can accomplish. And we have this perspective, even as we go through trials, we can rest in peace and joy. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17. The Apostle Paul, who experienced his fair share of hardship, says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then think about what Paul says here. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul could look at the trials of his life and say, you know what, I've been beaten, I've been imprisoned, I've been shipwrecked, I've experienced all these trials whipped, and yet it's light and momentary compared to the glory, the weight of the glory that God has prepared for us. This present trial is light and momentary compared to eternity. And he gives the encouragement that even these afflictions are preparing that for us. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So while we can expect hardship as believers, we can also expect victory. Because Christ has won the victory for us by bearing God's wrath on the cross, rising again from the dead. And we have the hope that He will one day come again. And He will conquer sin and death and Satan once for all. We see this in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. John, the very author of these words, as he sees a vision from Jesus of Revelation, he says this, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is what we eagerly expect for Christ to one day come and that victory to be fully realized. Now we see it through the eyes of faith, but then we'll see it face to face. 
And we can truly go through the hardships of life when we are fully trusting that Christ has overcome and we too will overcome, as Revelation says, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. It's our faith in Christ that will overcome. So I ask you this morning, are you trusting in the victory of Christ on your behalf? Are you seeking to overcome the trials and obstacles of life in your own strength? You have hope in what eternity holds. If you try to overcome sin and death on your own, you will fail every time. But Christ has overcome. And if you will turn from your sin and trust Him by faith, resting in His finished work on the cross and through the resurrection, then you will be born again. You will have victory. You will be able to say that you overcome through Christ. We read in our call to worship, 1 John 5, in verses 4 and 5, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You want to overcome today? Put your faith in Christ. Trust that He's done everything necessary to win your battles. Turn from your sin and trust the one who's paid the penalty for your sin and has defeated death and defeated sin and will one day fully reign. If you will do so today, then you can have the assurance that all of us as believers had that your victory is in Christ. And if you've done that, if you've trusted Christ, then you can experience peace and joy even in the midst of the trials of life. Even in the midst of the tragedies of life, you can cling to the Word of God and know that God is in the business of taking tragedy and producing triumph. And maybe you don't see it this side of eternity. Maybe you don't see how God is bringing triumph, but as Paul said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that we will experience. God is working throughout Scripture. Even from the moment Adam and Eve fell, what was the promise? That there would be a seed of the woman to crush the head of the snake. Victory was going to come, and it has come through Christ. We can rest in the promise that if we're in Christ, that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. Even as we face the fiery arrows of the enemy, we can rest that we have the armor of God and that we, He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. We can trust God in the midst of our circumstances and look forward to that ultimate hope we have of his return. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. Paul looks forward to this moment when that victory is fully realized. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Do you see these as taunting words? Death, where, where are you at, death? Where's your victory? Where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't stop at that verse because the very next verse says this. In light of our victory in Christ, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, there's a reality that we... We look to the coming of Christ. But as we go through the trials of life, we can't let the situations of the world and the trials in our life cause us to just step back from what we're doing for the Lord, hunker down in the corner and just look at, when are you coming back, Jesus? 
That's our mentality so many times. But what does Paul say? In light of our victory in Christ, in light of eternity, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. We should serve Christ. And part of the promise of victory is what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell will not prevail against His church. As we go out and faithfully proclaim the gospel, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of persecution, God is building His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, this past week, I'm wrapping up here, but this past week, uh, I was coming back from Owensboro. We get our groceries down in Owensboro, and I was thinking about uh, this text and just meditating on things. And I saw something I've probably seen a hundred times and never thought anything about. I was driving by the power plant down there, <clears throat> and I noticed, and maybe some of you have seen this, there's a train track that runs up to the power plant. And just before you get on the property of the power plant, there's a chain link fence. And so the track has to go through that chain link fence. And what do you know? There's a gate there, a chain link gate on the train track. And this verse popped into my mind. As Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. My thought was, you know what? If that train wants to get through, that gate's not even going to slow it down, right? It's not going to do any damage. The damage is going to be done to the gate. It's going to be destroyed. And the truth is, as we seek to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, we can trust that God is working in our labor. Our labor is not in vain. He's going to work through it to accomplish what He desires. He's going to lead people to faith in Him. He's going to build His church for His glory. Even our apparent losses are wins when God is working His purpose out. Even those who reject us, God's purpose is being accomplished. And so I challenge us not to have a defeatist mentality today. So many times as Christians, we look around at what's going on and we just feel like, oh, we're just bunch of losers. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And yet, how many times are we like that train conductor and we get up, oh, there's a gate, I guess i got to stop. No. Press on. Trust the victory that is ours in Christ. When we do that, we can have peace and joy in the midst of our trials. I want to close very quickly. I know it's been quite a while this morning. But I want to close. I began with a basketball illustration. I want to close with a football illustration, which in my opinion is the more superior sport. Now I know I'll probably get stoned afterward being in Indiana for saying that. <clears throat> but I want to close with a, a football illustration to get hopefully the point across. As many of you know, I am a diehard Clemson Tiger football fan and have been really my whole life. My mom went to Clemson for a few years. I grew up right around the area, 20 minutes from the stadium. And so I've been a fan through thick and thin. And for most of my life uh, in the 90s, they were just a middle of the road team. We were happy to be eight and four. You know, every once in a while, oh, we were nine and three. That's so fantastic. Never really had any chance of being a, a national contender on a regular basis. But all that changed a few years ago. And as Clemson's built the program up and Dabo Sweeney's recruited and planned things, they've come as to be a powerhouse. And I remember Several years ago, the first time Clemson made it to the national championship in my lifetime, uh, I remember just being excited they were there. We were playing the powerhouse team, the Alabama Crimson Tide. And so I was like, well, we're probably not going to win. Maybe there's an outside chance, but I hope we just don't get the floor. You know, I hope the floor isn't just mopped with us. Can we just make it respectable? And we did lose that game, but it was respectable. I think we lost by five points. Well, then the next year we made it back. 
We made it back against the very same Alabama Crimson Tide, this powerhouse team. And this year, I wasn't just happy to be there. I was excited. Maybe we had a chance to actually win this thing. And sure enough, the game was back and forth. And as you can imagine, if you've watched a a game that you're excited about, a team that you're rooting for, you know the ups and downs, the highs and lows of a game, right? Your team scores, you're ecstatic. The other team scores, you're depressed, right? Your quarterback throws an interception, you're just, you're about to turn the TV off. So I remember riding these ebbs and flows of the game and came down to the final few minutes and Clemson was winning 28-24. And I thought, man, if we can just hold them, we got a chance. But sure enough, their quarterback at the time, Jalen Hurts, scrambles for 40, 50 yards, something like that, and scores with two minutes left. So they go up 31-28. to And I'm thinking, man, we're going to blow this again. But if you know anything about the game, and you probably don't because you're not a fan like I am, Clemson got the kickoff, and they marched down the field, and with one second left, Hunter Renfro catches the game-winning pass, and Clemson wins. And I remember, again, the emotions of that day up and down in that moment, not knowing, are they going to score? Are we going to lose? Are they going to kick a field goal and go to overtime? What's going to happen? When Hunter Renfro caught that touchdown and the outcome was finalized, the victory was secure, I remember jumping over our love seat in excitement. And at that time, Jackson was just a little baby. Kelly's like, be quiet, you're going to wake him up. But I remember the excitement of that moment. Now, I've gone back a few times and watched some highlights of that game. And when I watch the highlights of that game, you know what? I don't have the ebbs and flows of, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to take place, right? Even when in that, the highlights Alabama scores, I'm not worried about it. Why? Because I know the outcome. I know my team's going to win. When Jalen Hurts scrambles and scores with two minutes left. I'm not worried because I know the outcome. I know what's going to happen. I see those Alabama fans cheering, and I know those cheers are about to be silenced, right, when my team scores and wins. I can watch it with joy knowing the outcome. The same is true for us as believers. The outcome is secure in Christ. And if you are in Him, the victory is secure. And I don't want to trivialize the challenges that we face in life by any stretch. But I want to encourage us to look to the hope we have of victory in Christ. And pray for strength from the Spirit in us so that as we go through those trials, we can have peace and we can have joy. And the world can look on in the chaos and the glory of God can be displayed in us. And they can say, what is it that you have that... I don't have. How can you go through the midst of this with peace and joy? And that can be an opportunity for us to share the hope that we have in Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ, the victory is secure. The outcome is sure. You can trust that God is at work in you and through you for your good and for his glory. You can truly take these words to heart that Jesus says. You can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you today for the victory of Christ. God, we pray for faith to see through the struggles of life, to see through the seeming defeats of life, and to in our faith trust that you are at work, that you are preparing in us an eternal weight of glory that we'll experience. That we long for the day of Christ's return. God, as we see the chaos of the world, we long for that more so. But God, as we 
As we look to that future hope, may it not paralyze us, but God, may it press us to push on with the gospel, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to always be abounding, knowing that you're working in our labors. God, we thank you that you work through our trials. You refine us. Lord, you bring glory to your people, to yourself as you work through your people. So God, help us to rest in you. Help us to rest in the victory of Christ. Lord, when we feel crippled by the world, may we look up to the hope that is in Christ, the victory we have in him. And may we truly be able to sing, no matter the storms of life, that it is well with our soul because we are in Christ. Lord, just challenge each of us where we are. Draw us to where you want us to be for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.